Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. John 21. John 21. I heard your excuse, Dean. (laughs) I'm not going to repeat it. All right. Um, John 20, 21. And let's um, let's look at a conversation that Jesus had with uh, Peter. This, I believe, is his third conversation that we've we've gone through with Peter. And uh, we're coming to the end of the study on the conversations of Jesus and John that ends tonight. And this is the last um, regular service of the, the year. And so it's kind of fitting that that would be the case. Uh, we, all know, we all know what it's like um, to fail in our courage or to fail in representing Christ the way that we should. Or maybe we... Uh, I'm, I'm certain we all know what it, it's like to fail Jesus in terms of sinning against him after declaring our love for him. And that's, uh, that's this conversation. This conversation is about the recall. This is Peter being recalled to ministry after his failure. And we all, we all know what's ahead uh, of this uh, John 21. We know that Acts is coming. We know the, the mission of the church. There's a great Pentecost sermon in which Peter's going to uh, bring the house down, and he's and three thousand people are going to get saved and come into the kingdom. Uh, he's going to stand up to the religious leaders when he wasn't willing to stand up and declare Jesus in front of a little slave girl the night Jesus was arrested. So all these things are going to happen, and we know that uh, the mission of Jesus is going to continue after he ascends to the Father. It used to trouble me why uh, Jesus needed to ascend, but. It occurs to me that as long as Christ is on earth, then our worship, our adoration, maybe even our presence would want to be localized in one place. Wherever he is in, in physical presence, we would want to be there. We'd want to go there. Can you imagine having millions of people surrounding one human individual and walking around with him? It just is unthinkable. And so Jesus needed to ascend to the Father, if for no other reason than so that when we live for God, wherever we are, we can have the near presence of God with us. And we're not focused on a place, we're focused on a person who's with the Father, and we can do that wherever we are. You understand the difference that in the Old Testament, God was trying through, um, through an object lesson to show that people needed to come to his presence. And so the epicenter of that would have been Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But after the the veil of the temple was torn and the Holy Spirit was poured out, God's presence was unleashed on all of humanity, if you would would choose to use that verb, unleashed. He's present everywhere. So all of this is beginning to take place, and it's necessary then for Jesus to go. But there's a situation that needs to be resolved for the next step to take place. Uh, The denial of Peter needs to be addressed. And we can see the Gospels in a nutshell in the life of Peter. It gives us uh, hope to anyone who's ever stumbled in their walk with God that the heroes of the faith, they're not without their faults and failures. But he ever found a little bit of encouragement? I mean, we wouldn't wish for David or Moses even. Remember Moses when he refused to circumcise his boys and uh, God was about ready to strike him down. And uh, there were things like that. we could probably call Samuel out. He wasn't the greatest parent in the world. And there were other examples of great men and women of God who had failures, although I see less in the women of God. But there are failures there, and we can look at that. And if nothing else, we can gain some encouragement that people were not perfect. Even the heroes of the faith were not perfect. And yet God restored them, and he used them, and he empowered them to do great things for him. We still admire their faith and their holiness even. And we see in Peter's life this microcosm of the gospel that here's a person who declares love for Jesus and then fails Jesus, and then uh, Christ comes to him out of grace and restores him to himself. There's a, a gospel in a nutshell in that.
And it shows us the truly repentant are welcome back and can find usefulness in the work of God somewhere. So I'd like to take us to a couple different uh, things here. First of all, I'd like to point out that there is in this calling a similar scene. Okay, look at let's look at John twenty-one here. We'll we'll read verses um, one through eight here. It says afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. What does that tell us? Right off the bat, what information can we get from that? He's already seen them at least once, okay? And uh, he's appearing to them again, okay? We know that. He appeared to them again uh, by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going, I'm, going to, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. And so they went out and they got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. They caught nothing. Uh, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish No, they answered, and he said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is who? John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him For he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water, and the other disciple followed in the boat, impetuous Peter once again, towing the net full of fish. I bet the other guys were uh, frustrated with Peter that he was so impetuous. For they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. All right, so... This is a familiar scene. John doesn't uh, record the first call for us, but Luke does. And you can find it in Luke chapter 5. Remember, John is writing much later than Luke, and so most people would be familiar with the Gospel of Luke. It had already been in circulation. And so I don't think John feels that he needs to repeat every detail of the story. I think he's now referring to something that's dealing specifically with Peter. And so we should assume that he knows other people will be familiar with it too. And so there's no need for him to tell everything that's happened uh, from the earlier call uh, from Luke. But it's worth comparing here. So if you want, you can turn to Luke chapter 5. But let me just outline here in seven simple steps what took place on that occasion. Uh, Peter was washing his nets by the Sea of Galilee in Luke chapter 5 verse 2. In verse 3... Uh, Jesus said to Peter, um, he got into his boat, he said, push out a little bit, and he taught people from the boat. Do you remember that? So he's teaching from the boat people who are standing on the shore. And Jesus asked Peter after he was done teaching, go out a little further and let down your nets. On this occasion, he doesn't say throw your net on the right or the left. He just says, let your nets down again. Okay, and then that's in... uh, That's in verse 4. In verse 5, it tells us Peter was tired, and he was reluctant to do it because he was empty-handed from fishing all night. And I have to read a little bit between the lines here that Peter, as a fisherman, is thinking of Jesus as a carpenter. What do you know about fishing? Don't you think? Like, I've fished all night. I know these waters. We've not caught anything. The fish aren't, they're not biting because they're catching them in nets, but they're just not there. Uh, He was reluctant. He was empty-handed, but he obeyed. You have to keep in mind that fishing like that is different from fishing like what we're used to. We're talking about throwing heavy nets that are weighted on the ends into the water repeatedly and pulling them back out. And that was going on all night long. You get tired. I mean, it's like probably shoveling the driveway. You get tired after doing something like that. But despite that, he obeyed. He obeyed with a little bit of protest. Lord, we fished all night, not caught a thing, but because you've said, we'll do, we'll do what you, you say, but because you've said. 
That's verse 5, Luke 5, 5. Verse 6 and 7 tells us Peter caught fish almost beyond the capacity of both net and boat. Right? It says in the NIV, I don't know exactly how this is worded in the, I can't remember the KJV, but the, uh, or what the Greek would say on this, but it says the nets almost tore. And then they almost sank the boats. Remember? Another boat comes over. They put fish in that boat. It almost sinks the boat. That's in verses 6 and 7 of Luke chapter 5. And then verse 8, Peter is humbled by Jesus' greatness. Do you remember what he says? He says, depart from me, Lord, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And I think what he's referring to here is his rotten attitude, his tendency to doubt, maybe his failure to see the glory of who Jesus is, that he's the Lord of these waters, okay, and he should know. But suddenly there's an awareness, I am small and he is great, and he is humbled by it, verse 8, Luke 5, 8. Verses 10 through 11, Peter follows Jesus' call, because Jesus calls them at that point, says, come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men, a fisher of people. Okay, so these are the things that are happening in Luke chapter 5. I think when we come to John 21, we need to draw on that. Remember that, that this is, this is uh, essentially Peter's first call in Luke chapter 5. Okay, I know there's, uh, it talks about in other gospels that Jesus came by and the disciples are working uh, there. And one gospel says that, I think it's John, says that um, Jesus was preaching, and Andrew met him, and then he brought his brother Peter and introduced him. And so I think what we're dealing with here are different encounters that took place in the early call of Peter. Like there's a meeting, and then there's a call to come follow as a disciple. Okay, So we have the call to follow as a disciple here in Luke chapter 5 and verses 1 through 10. So now back in John, the similarities here is that there's something taking place. Peter is fishing in verse 3. We're now in John 21, verse 3. Peter, once again, just like in Luke 5, is fishing. Okay, And I'm going to suggest to you that this is the exact same spot where Peter was before. I can't know that for certain, but I imagine that Peter in fishing comes to the same place. There's an idea that perhaps he has a house in Capernaum and they would launch out right from there. Okay, So uh, he's fishing once again in verse 3. Verse 4 tells us that he fished all night and didn't catch anything. That's the same as in Luke chapter 5. Okay, An earlier experience, he fished all night and didn't catch anything. I'm sure Peter's had that happen before, and now it's happening again. He's fished all night and not caught anything. Jesus tells them in verse 6 of, of 21 here to cast their nets again, to cast them now on the right side of the boat. Cast them on the right side of the boat. There's not anything magical about right or left. Jesus, knowing those waters and knowing all things, knew where the fish were. And it's amazing to me that fish can be on one side of the boat and not on the other. But fish are locally, they occupy space just like we do. You're in one spot and not on the other. If uh, somebody threw a net in your direction, it might hit the seat next to you, and it might not hit you, or it might hit you and not the person next to you. You see, the same way. So they throw the net on the other side. There the fish are. And uh, then again, in verse 6, Peter caught fish almost beyond capacity. You see the similarities? He caught fish almost beyond capacity. And then, in verse 7, there's a recognition of the presence of the Lord. Okay, That happened before it was Peter saying, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Now it's John saying, it's the Lord. And Peter saying, oh, it's the Lord. And he gets, uh, he wraps his outer tunic around himself and he jumps in the water and swims to where Jesus is. So we have something of a similar circumstance. And I think the reason is, is that God wants to bring to mind to Peter the fact that he's been called before and he's bringing him back to his first call again. This is the recall. This is similar circumstances. Peter's at a different place in his life, but it's like God's saying, I'm taking you back, and I'm calling you again. I'm recalling you to what I've called you to before. And he's saying to him, essentially, follow me, which we'll come to in just a moment. But there's, there's this similar 
um, there's a similar scene, and the scene is the fishing scene along the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus, once again, standing afar, standing on the shore, says, cast your nets. The other time, Jesus in the boat, but they cast nets. Similar things. All of these things would have come flooding back to Peter's mind. It would have taken him back. Now, what's happened between now and then? What's happened between this moment where Jesus is calling to Peter again and the time before when he called? Is there anything significant that's taken place? There's a lot, but what, what would we think of? The crucifixion, okay? And what, what was Peter's part in the crucifixion evening? Do you remember? He denied Jesus. So when you deny like that, you may start to wonder, if I fail God, can he still use me? Can he still, does he still want me to be his disciple? Does he still want to have me be an apostle? Can I still minister for him? Can I still represent him? Can I still serve him? Those are the kind of questions that Peter may have going through his mind. Because in all of the, all of the resurrection scenes, we have Peter kind of standing a little bit aloof. I don't know how to describe it. I can't, I can't see it exactly in the text there, but it seems like the other disciples are reaching out like Thomas is speaking up. We never hear Thomas. Maybe a couple other times in all the Gospels. We always are hearing about Peter saying this thing or that thing. But it seems like in the resurrection accounts, Peter is relatively silent. He doesn't have much to say. Why do you think that would be for a person who's so outspoken? Maybe he feels shame. Maybe he feels really ashamed, like that awkwardness of when you've let somebody down and then you've got to face them again. Because um, in one of the Gospels, it says when the rooster crowed, Peter and Jesus made eye contact. They saw each other in that moment. And so there, must have, there was a heart that sunk, and he went and sobbed terribly for that. And then when he hears Jesus is risen, there is excitement and elation at the fact that he's risen but there's also that, that thing in the pit of his stomach, like, I've failed him. So we have that similar scene at the fishing, and I think it's all geared towards what's coming next. The next thing we see is a similar smell, or we, I guess we could smell a similar smell, but we, we read that in the Scripture, and that similar smell is fire. And I think this is really interesting because uh, there are only two places that this particular word is used. And I'm going to tell you what it is, and I don't want you to be distracted by it. But the word that's used here for fire is anthrax. And it means charcoal fire. So right here in the Greek, the word that's used, there's only two places. Over 70 times in the New Testament, it talks about fire. And it uses different words. It uses the word, uh, we would say, P-U-R. And I think we get our word pyre from it, like a funeral pyre. We get our word purify from it, to, to cleanse with fire. It comes from that. Uh, and that's the predominant word is P, P-U-R, and then there's forms of that. And then we have in John the word anthrax twice. And the first time it's mentioned, anybody want to guess? Anybody know what charcoal smells like? Charcoal fire? There's nothing like it. There's no other smell like it, is there? The other place that this is found is in John chapter 18, verse 17. It says, The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Okay, so now we come back to the Sea of Galilee. And uh, we look at when they come to the shore with their catch of fish. And I'd like you to notice what it says. I think it's somewhere around verse 8. It says here that, sorry, I'm not seeing it. Disciple whom Jesus loved said, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garments around him 
and he jumped into the water. The other disciple followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with the fish on it and some bread. It's the same word. This is interesting because I think what John is trying to do is create a link for us between one event and another. And I know that's the case because this isn't the only thing in the context that's doing that. We have the denial how many times? And then we have the affirmation how many times? Three affirmations that we're going to read about in just a moment where Jesus asks uh, Peter, do you love me? So everything seems to be pointing back. It's as if uh, it's as if Jesus is saying to Peter in this moment, we need to go for- forward, but we can't go forward until we go back and deal with something. Okay, You have denied me, and I know that that's going to be an obstacle, and we need to deal with that. It's not so much that um, Christ needed to deal with that as Peter needed to deal with that, because Christ dealt with that on the cross. Peter needed to deal with that. And also, people need to know that Peter has dealt with that and been forgiven because Peter is going to take up a place of responsibility. If he's just the Lord denier, all of his ministry, that's a problem. We need to know he's dealt with this with the Lord. And I think that helps us to remember there's something significant here. I heard Joseph Stoll, who taught at Moody Bible, he was the president of Moody Bible Institute for years, uh, he talked about the smell of the charcoal fire, that it would have brought back a moment. And we know that smell is the most closely related of all the senses to me- uh, memory. Everything seems to be pointing back now to that moment of denial. It was around the charcoal fire that Peter had denied knowing Jesus three times, and it's going to be around the charcoal fire that he's going to affirm his love for Jesus. Uh, Peter had returned at this moment to his past profession. Maybe he was thinking his days of being a disciple are over. But Jesus appeared again on the shore, telling him to put his nets out again. Uh, And again, there was this flood of fish. Remember, um, this has been prophesied, by the way, that that Peter would fail. In In the upper room dialogues of John, I think it says... Somewhere in there, uh, Peter, maybe it's in Luke. Peter, uh, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you return again, you need to minister to the others, your brothers. Okay, so there's already that anticipation that this is going to happen, but there's hope through it. Okay, And then we, uh, we know in um, other places, Peter is told that he's to minister to them and to feed, which we will read about in just a moment. But it's around this charcoal fire that all of this takes place. What does it all mean? See, for this, we're returning to where it all began for Peter, but there must be something else which has to be faced. And so Peter has to come to terms once again with his past. And we don't know what might have been said, but the next thing... um, between the eating or around the fire of eating. But after the meal was done, Jesus began to address Peter. And I think it's right there in front of all of the other disciples. Uh, He follows it with a question. He says to Peter, look at verse 15 with me there. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John. I'm told by the commentators that this would have been, uh, to call him Simon, son of John, would have been less of an intimate and more of a formal way of dressing Peter. Okay, it's like maybe when your mom or dad said to you, you know, called you by your full name. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? Like, get, gets your attention, and it creates a little bit of maybe uneasiness in the person hearing it. And for Peter, this would have done this. It was as if Jesus is treating him less familiarly, and so he's challenging his friendship. Not in the sense of he's saying, I don't believe you, love me, but it's almost like he's provoking Peter. Peter, what are we? Okay, It's not that Jesus doesn't know, and it's not that he doesn't know the future, but I think what he's doing is he's provoking in Peter a particular response. Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue to remain aloof and distant? Or are you going to come close? Are you going to pursue? Are you going to 
return in this relationship. Simon, son of John, are you going to remain aloof? Then he says, do you love me more than these? More than these. What What are the these? Have you thought about that? Have you asked that question? The fish? Could be. Could be the fish. That's one option is the fish, the boats, the fishing implements. Do you love me more than these? But I think the way that this is phrased, uh, it's not impersonal objects, but it's people. Okay, So we're, we're not, it's not so much, um, do you love me more than these things? Okay, I think that would have been a simple answer. I don't think Jesus needed to ask that question. Do you love me more? Do you love me more than fishing? I think Peter's already shown that. He's willing to walk away and follow Jesus. So then the next option becomes, do you love me more than you love these other guys? Because there's other disciples sitting around the fire with them. Do you love me more than you love these other guys? I don't think Jesus needs to ask that question either. Because obviously, Peter loves Jesus more than the other, he loves the other disciples. Would you agree with that? I think he does. So what does it mean? How about this? Do you love me more than these guys love me? Okay. I'm not saying that Jesus is trying to put Peter into a competition with the other guys, but you remember that this was the great boast, is that Peter loves more than the others, and yet Peter failed Jesus worse than most. Think about if we just go back a little bit. Now we're post-resurrection. I don't, I don't know exactly what day it is we're talking about here, but um, maybe within that next week or two, after the resurrection, Jesus appears on the Sea of Galilee there. And uh, not long before that, in the upper room, right before Jesus was arrested, what was the conversation with the guys? Can you remember? Well, well there was conversation like that, but there was a topic that was brought up. When Jesus went to wash their feet, what were they talking about? Who's the greatest? Who's going to be at the right hand? Who's the greatest? And out of that conversation comes this great boast from Peter. They were arguing about who was the greatest. And so Jesus, in that context, served them by washing their feet, by doing the lowly thing. And then says, this is how you ought to love one another and serve one another. But they were arguing about who's the greatest and they may have been talking about who loved Jesus most. And I wonder if out of that discussion, Peter says, and we know he says this, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. Not, we will lay down our lives for you, but I will lay down my life for you. Okay? It seems to me what Peter has done is separated himself and given himself a new category of elitism, that I'm the greatest disciple. I'm willing to go this far. And of course, we know Peter didn't even know himself well enough. He thought he did, but he didn't. If we're to judge by what really happened, we would think John was the greatest disciple. Because John actually stuck a little bit around. Even if he did initially, wasn't there. But he was there at the trial. He was there at the crucifixion. Where was Peter? He kind of hung out in the shadows. And we don't know where he was at the crucifixion. Do you love me more than these other guys love me? So Jesus is provoking something in him. You say you'd love me in this way, and I don't think he's necessarily um, endorsing this comparative kind of love because we're going to deal with that in just a minute about this comparative stuff. We need to get out of that kind of thinking. He's not trying to provoke him to compare himself with other people. But what he's trying to say is, you say you love me more than these. If you do, then show me by, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Notice, uh, you love me more than these. I want to put a, something up here on the screen. Okay, you can see these key words in Greek. There's three series of questions here. Let's read through that real quick just so we get a sense of it as we go through this. 
when they had finished, this is verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, there's been a lot that's been made of the different words that are used here. And I thought we might talk about this for a couple moments. Um, Because in the first series, Jesus says, do you love me? And he uses, he uses this word here, agape, okay? And then uh, Peter says, uh, you know I love you, and he uses this word, phileo, okay? Lots been made of this. And then Jesus' application here, take care of my, uh, take care of, Bosco, my lambs, right? Then we have over here uh, in the second series, uh, Jesus asking the question again, do you love me, agape? Okay. Peter's answer, you know that I love you. And then uh, he uses the word phileo there, and then he uses take care of. And I'd like you to notice this word is different from this word right here. Okay. Take care of, feed. Right in the third question, Jesus changes it a little bit. He says, Simon, do you love me? And he uses the word that Peter's been using. And then Peter says, you know that I love you. And then he says, or he says, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he uses a different word for no. And then he, and Peter uses the same word for love. He uses uh, a different word from the second series for take care of. And then he used, they use a different word for sheep in these two. Notice that. Here's the point. If that's confusing to you, I just want to bring out a point, is that John is, no, is notoriously known for using arbitrary synonyms. What that means is that without having any change of meaning, he uses a different word. Okay? So there's been a lot that's been made of. Agape is the highest form of love. Yes, it, it often is, but John uses it, uses these as exact synonyms throughout the Gospel of John. So there's not any difference in meaning between agape and phileo in this context. John is just using a variety. It does, it's not, he doesn't necessarily, as he's remembering this conversation, he may be remembering the exact nuance, but probably when they're speaking, they're not speaking in Greek anyway. They're speaking in Aramaic, or they may be speaking in Hebrew. So John, as he's remembering this, he's got to coin it in uh, the Greek language, and when he does that, he uses different words, but he does that uh, just for variety of style. And I would suggest to you for no other reason than that, and we have examples of that in other places. And here's some examples right here, like why go from lambs to sheep and then to sheep, or care for Bosco to uh, Poimeno, back to Bosco, and then we've got Oida, Oida, Gnosko, and all of these different words, um, and Jesus even changing the, the question of love here. The reason is because he's not trying to say a whole bunch of different things, and we read in complexity that's really not there. What Jesus is asking is a simple question, do you love me? Peter's saying, yes, I love you. You know that I love you. Then take care of, which is the general meaning of both Bosco and whatever this other word is, take care of, feed my lambs. Take care of my people. And then lambs, sheep, sheep, what's the difference? Same thing all the way through. So if you're studying this or you're teaching on this, be careful about um, making a distinction where there's no difference intended. There's really not. The simplicity of it is this. Jesus is asking, Peter, you've, you said that you didn't know me. I really know you love me. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Okay. Then the response to that is, care about what I care about. Feed my sheep. You know what God cares about more than anything? Do you think he cares about the land? I mean, Alaska is beautiful. Do you think he cares about Alaska more than he does one soul? Think about it. One soul. Do you think this land, all of its beauty, is worth more than one soul? See, one soul is eternal. All of this 
it's fading away. It's gonna, it says the earth will melt like a fervent with a fervent heat. One soul is worth more than all of this. What does God care about? He cares about people. I was thinking a while back, and I had to, sometimes we let worldliness cramp in on us, don't we? I was thinking a while back about uh, some of the artifacts. Remember when ISIS was going through and destroying archaeological sites and all of that? And I thought, what a shame, what a tragedy. And I felt like the Spirit of God kind of checked my heart on that and said, it's worse for one person to die and go to hell than for all of the artifacts in the world to be destroyed. That's true, folks. That's true. That people are worth more than all of that. I want to go past this because it's um, not as significant as what's coming next. So I, I just wanted to point this out here that Okay, I wanted to show you this real quick, that sometimes different words have overlapped. Does anybody know what this is called? It's a Venn diagram. And what we have here is the word love, the word care. And when we have words like this, um, what we call this circle that goes around here, this is uh, what they would call a semantic domain. Words are not just like locked into one thing. They have ranges of meaning. Okay, so when you say love, you mean different levels of love when you're talking about different things. Are you with me? Like you might mean I love this. You might mean I prefer this to that, okay, on the base level. Like if it's Rocky Road ice cream, you might love that in comparison with, I don't know, peanut butter ice cream or whatever. And then we might talk about our love for God. Those two aren't even in the same universe, right? Like our love for Rocky Road ice cream. Okay, we live without that. But we can't live without God. So we have this huge range of meanings when we use the word love. And one of the problems that we have in our culture is that we we flow, uh, throw this word around with just about anything. And then we have the word care, and it has some different shades of meaning to it as well. And so what happens is in these that there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of overlap. And you can see that in this area here. Okay, and I would suggest to you that agape and phileo are like that, and that's what we're talking about in John is this area where those two words overlap. And so when they're using those words, I think that's what it's talking about. And uh, in fact, um, one of the commentaries I read on this, Raymond Brown, he said um, he said that the older scholars like Cyril and uh, Chris Stone and some of the older Bible scholars and some of the ref- reformers, they all believe that phileo and agape in John 21 mean the same thing. I'm making a big deal about this. Probably we don't need to. But he said, and then there was a group of English scholars in the last century that tried to divide them up and show different shades of meaning. And he said, presently, scholarship is coming back to the earlier idea that these two mean exactly the same thing. So when we're talking about love for God, we're talking about the same thing. Thanks for allowing me to go on a little soapbox there. I just think it's necessary. Sometimes we read into things uh, that maybe aren't intended to be intended to be different. Okay. And then we have this third area to summons or follow. I want to finish what I'm talking about with this last area, the fire. It's sometimes suggested here Jesus is asking. Peter for a certain kind of love, agape, but Peter is only willing to give a lesser kind of love, phileo. And so Jesus reduces the question to match the kind of love that Peter is willing to give. But this isn't really what this is talking about. What this is, what's taking place here is a restoration uh, to a call and a specific focus. Uh, you can see there's two verbs for love, to know, to feed, to tend. And then, in fact, in John chapter, to show how he just arbitrarily, without any reason, changes words just for style. He uses three different words for fish in this chapter. Isn't that interesting? He used three different words for fish. And so through the gospel, the words are interchangeable. Sometimes it says the disciple whom Jesus loves, it uses the word agape. Sometimes it says the disciple whom Jesus loved, and it uses the word phileo. So John uses these as synonyms. I'm going to skip past some of this other stuff here. Uh, But what I wanted to say is that uh, what 
what uh, John is really getting at is that Christ is a restorer of people who've failed him. If we're to draw an application from this part of the passage, it might be that Christ will meet us back where we began. And if you failed the Lord, if you've denied him in word or action, Jesus is Lord of second chances and third chances and so on. And I think we ought to cling to that. And not only should we cling to that for ourselves, because I think every one of us wants forgiveness. And we want forgiveness even if we failed him the tenth time. I mean, how many times have we run off at our mouth and said something that we shouldn't have said and regretted it? We want to be forgiven. I do. How about you? Or having the wrong attitude? I want to be forgiven for that. And so when we ask the Lord for forgiveness, but then when it comes to other people, we're not so willing to let them receive the forgiveness of God. We need to do that as well. Um, and I know that some of us may be really uncomfortable with this kind of thinking because we might think of extreme cases. Well, what about forgiveness in that particular area? You know, there's only one sin that God says he won't forgive, and it seems to be the sin that doesn't want forgiveness. Do you know what I mean by that? Like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit where you don't want to be redeemed anymore. You've, you've pushed off, you've rejected salvation, uh, you've apostatized, you've turned away, and you don't want that. But anybody who's wanting to come back, it seems that there is forgiveness in Christ. He will for, the Son of Man will forgive all sins except for one. And uh, John refers to that as the sin that leads to death. So I, I know sometimes we're uncomfortable with that. And let me say that we shouldn't take this as cheap grace at all. Jesus now meeting with Peter, who's denied him. He uh, said, I didn't know you. Do you know in the early church they had a problem with this too? Because there was a time when persecution broke out and some people lapsed in their faith. They said when the pressure was on that they didn't know. They weren't Christians. They weren't going to serve. Or they swore by one of the other gods. And then after the persecution let up, they wanted to come back to church. And some of the church leaders were like, no, you blew it, dude. You're out. And uh, there was a group of people that came in and said, no, we need to remember that there is forgiveness. And so then some of the hardliners are like, okay, well, you get one more chance. But if you do it again, you're really out this time. And uh, I don't think that catches it either. I think we, we know that God ultimately knows. And being forgiven doesn't mean that we put people back in a situation where they can hurt again, if you know what I mean by that. And so uh, there is forgiveness, but there's wisdom that has to go along with that. And so let me say that we shouldn't take this as cheap grace. There are consequences for failure. For one, Peter was humbled. He thought he was the best of the disciples, but he was only outdone in his betrayal by Judas. Think of that. Uh, Who loves him? Who's the greatest? Peter, I think, thought it was him, and he found out that that only Judas, it's not really a laughing matter, but he found out only Judas uh, was worse than him. And Peter also had to face the fact that he didn't really know himself as well as he thought he did. This is a hard thing to face. When we think that we're a certain strength in God or we're, uh, we're at a certain maturity level, and then we face something in our lives that m- make us come to terms with the fact that we're really not as strong as we thought we were or as spiritual as we thought we were, as holy as we thought we were, that can be really, really humbling. And so Peter's humbled to realize he's not as strong as he thought he was. He promised that he would die with Jesus, but when the danger came, he saved himself. And Peter may have taken a hit on his reputation. Everybody else might have thought of Peter as the guy, you know? They might have asked at this point, why should we listen to you? You failed so badly. We shouldn't listen to you. We didn't even run as far as you did. We should be leading this and not you. Uh, and so the point I want to make in that is there's consequences to failing God. Being forgiven doesn't mean that we easily get a sidestep consequences. And so let that be our warning. Rather than dangling over our head, God will never forgive us. He will. He will forgive. But it doesn't mean that it will be easy from that point on. And so I wanted to make that statement for a sake of balance, that there is forgiveness. There's forgiveness from God. There should be forgiveness from the people of God. 
And so this story really points to hope beyond the failure. God can use us. There's a call after the call. There's a call after the failure. And there there can be forgiveness and restoration. And it all happened around a charcoal fire that Peter denied Jesus three times, and it was around a charcoal fire that he would profess his love for Jesus three times. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? And it says Peter was hurt. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. The, the answer, feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. If you want to show you love me, love my people. Love the, love the, the sheep that are in my fold. That's how you love Jesus. By the way, you remember it says, as you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. If you want to love Jesus, love his people. And also, another verse that comes to mind is when, when Saul, later known as Paul, was persecuting the church, and Jesus met him on the Damascus Road. Do you remember the offense that Christ took at him? Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? What he was thinking was, I'm not persecuting God. I'm persecuting the enemies of God who are these Christians. And Jesus took it personally because when you touch his people, when you mess with his people, when you hurt his people, that hurts God. When you love his people, that's love for God. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I will bless those who bless you. Do you see? He's, he cares about those kinds of things. And sometimes we think we can get isolated in our spirituality and think that we're, we just got this horizontal relationship and the, uh, excuse me, the vertical relationship, the horizontal doesn't matter. And what this shows us and other passages show us is that many times the way we love God is by loving one another. John says in his epistle, uh, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God. He that doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. He says, how can you say that you love God whom you've not seen and hate your brother who you do see? doesn't go together. So you see the application here is that loving God means that we ought to love one another. This is one of the reasons for the church. We come together to express the love of God to one another. It's not the only reason, but it's one of them. All right, there's a similar summons. Summons is a command that calls one to itself. And this is what Jesus does with John, excuse me, with Peter here. And we see this in verse 18 and following. Look at verse 18. This is after the call, feed my sheep. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, verse 18, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this. This is John's commentary on it. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said, follow me. So now there's a summons once again to follow. What was the first thing that Peter heard when he was along the Sea of Galilee and, and met Jesus coming by as they're fishing? What's the first thing you heard? Did you catch anything? Okay, after that. What's the initial words of invitation? It's follow me, isn't it? Follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Okay, interesting because we just came out of a different encounter with Jesus. The second encounter, the call after the call. The first call is fisher of men. Jesus switches the metaphor in the second call and says, feed my sheep. Before, he says, fish for men. It doesn't mean the earlier call is done. It just means he's taken on a new pastoral facet. And uh, that's part of the call of God. But it's, it's to follow. That's the first call. Before you can minister to anybody, you've got to be a follower. Before you can lead anybody, you need to be a follower. In John uh, 21, verse 18 through 24, it talks about this. Follow literally means, the word, the Greek word for follow here literally means uh, to move behind someone in the same direction. Okay, that's really elementary, isn't it? Like we all know what it means to follow somebody. Move behind someone in the same direction. But that figure is taken over into the picture of a disciple. To be a follower, a disciple of someone uh, is the sense of adhering to their teaching by following after their teaching or instruction or following the cause of that leader, obeying that leader, 
And that's what being a disciple of Jesus means. In the context, follow means not only follow as a disciple, but also follow, in this context, follow in death. You might, uh, you might translate this this way, adhere to me or, or get behind me as a follower. So when Jesus asked Peter the questions that he's just asked, do you love me? He's reminding him of his first call. And he comes back to the same place he was before on the Sea of Galilee and calls to him from there, that, that fishing scene. And maybe the very same place where the first call took place, among the boats and the gear. And John records this restoration of Peter wonderfully, but the call is to come and follow him again. It's going back to the very first elementary things. I don't know if you remember, there used to be a group by, uh, called For Him. Do you remember that group, For Him? And they sang a song, you got to get back to the, they call it the basics of life. You need to get back to the basics. And the basics are, as Christians, that we are followers of Jesus. We're followers. Before anything else, before pastor or parent or uh, citizen or uh, whatever it is, whatever role you fill, the first, the first thing that we're called to as Christians is to be followers, and that takes priority over everything, is to follow him. Jesus asked, will you follow me again, Peter? Will you follow me? And now he's saying, take care of my sheep. I don't think this verse in any way sets Peter up. He's, even the invitation sets him up to be like the predecessor to all popes or some kind of outstanding member among the apostles, like he's the elite apostle. I think the book of Acts devotes the first part to the ministry of Peter, the second part to the ministry of Paul, and they're not even split exactly evenly. Um, And the other apostles are mentioned in there. So it's not like Peter is the one, and like upon Peter I will build my church. It's upon the declaration of faith that Peter made that Christ builds his church. But what he's doing is he's restoring Peter to a place of fellowship. And by John's writing here, if we think it's AD 85, uh, Peter's probably been dead about 20 years by now. You might have seen this picture. Uh, It's about, it was painted about, I think, 1601. And I don't have the painter's name in front of me. But this is Peter being crucified. We have by tradition knowledge that Peter was crucified. He died. in the Neronian persecution, somewhere around A.D. 65, maybe 67 at the latest. Um, And Nero had a lot of Christians killed in Rome, and among them were Peter and Paul. And the tradition that we get is that Peter was crucified, but he didn't want to be crucified in the same way Jesus was. He felt unworthy of it, so he had them crucify him upside down. And this is Peter being crucified upside down. And so here, this is um, telling us a little bit about the way that Peter is to die. And, and John says, when you're young, this is Jesus actually saying it, but John's recording it for us. You went about wherever you would when you're old, people will carry you where you don't want to go. So Jesus and Peter are having a discussion. And I get the sense that either they're walking at this point or John is sitting behind them somehow listening in on this conversation. And Jesus says to him that you're to follow me even when it leads to this. And John says this is the way that he was to glorify God. And what we see is the call to follow is to follow, first of all, for the glory of God. Okay, see that when Peter dies on the cross, he's showing in some way that God is worthy of our giving our whole lives for. I don't know that there's any greater statement that can be made of God's worthiness than that somebody lay down their life and say, if it's between serving God and this world, I choose God. If it's serving Christ or if it's serving things or other people or myself, I choose Christ, and if it means that I have to pay the ultimate price, I'm willing to pay it. And that's what Peter did, and in that way he glorifies God. It's not that in any way God uh, glories or rejoices in the fact that his saints are martyred. The glory comes from the fact that it makes a statement about his worthiness. 
that somebody is willing to lay down their life. We don't lay down our life for little things. We lay down our life for the important things. And there's nothing more important than laying down our lives for Christ. Most of us will only have to do that figuratively. Some have to do it literally. But we have to do it figuratively. Like Paul said, I die daily. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ lives in me. I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after having preached to others on myself, I'm not a castaway. Like all of his life is geared towards serving Christ. And so in a figurative sense, he's saying, I've already died to myself. But then there are some that will pay the price, literally. And Peter was one of those. So the call to follow is to follow for the glory of God. It's second to follow wherever it leads, whatever the cost. Okay, And for him, it means going to the cross. And Peter looks back and he's like, what about this one, this disciple? And it's the disciple whom Jesus loves. Who is? John. What about him? And Jesus says, well, um, and let me read it. It's on the next page for us, for me, not maybe for you. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them, so they're walking. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? So John's letting us know that as he's writing this, it was him. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? What about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Okay, so here uh, we have Jesus saying, this is my plan for you. This is my plan for you. This is my plan for you, Peter. This is what will happen to you, John. Maybe it's not even plan. Maybe it's this what will happen to you, Peter. As a result of following me, this is what's going to happen to you, John, but it seems to be more providential than that. If I want him to, Jesus says, to remain until I come, that's not your business. You understand that? That what is happening here is this third thing. The call to follow him is to follow what God has for him and to follow what God has for us. It doesn't look alike, and that's why we can't sit around comparing and saying, well, that's there. Why isn't God blessing me in that way? Maybe it's something different for you. Why isn't God doing that exact? And I'm not saying that he's not, he's not, um, he's a respecter of persons. I'm saying that in light of what he's called us to, he's given specific grace for specific individuals to do specific things and live a specific way. And as we do that, when it's all said and done, he's going to evaluate us in a fair way, and he's going to reward us in a fair way. To whom much is given, much is required. To whom less is given, less will be required. And the evaluation will come, and the equity will come in the next life, not in this one. You understand what I mean? That what our responsibility is to live in light of what God has placed in our lives and, and live it to the glory of God to the best we can, you know? And then leave the outcomes to him. Peter wants to compare. What about John? I don't like what you're telling me about going to the cross. What about him? And Jesus says, that's not your concern. And sometimes when we look around and make comparisons, I would hope the Holy Spirit would say to us, that's not your concern. Your concern is you follow me. You follow me. And that's good. What's the application from this message? I think the first thing is, don't give up on usefulness to God if he hasn't given up on you. So if we need to, we should repent when it's needed and make ourselves available to be used by God. You may have to work through some embarrassment of past failures, but that doesn't mean God can't use you to do His work in some way and somehow. But don't give up on usefulness. Don't ever discount yourself and say, God can't use me anymore. I'm all washed up. I'm all used up, and I embarrassed myself, or I've failed in some way. No, pick back up and let God use you today. Ask, ask His forgiveness. Ask Him to help you. And pursue the very best you can in, in light of who he is. Second thing is this, is that we should love God. Uh, love for God is expressed. Sorry, love for God is expressed best by following Jesus and serving him as he calls us. Do you love him? Do you love God? Um, 
if you love him, then we should serve him in those ways. We shouldn't understand this as we're trying to prove our love. Like even Peter, as Jesus says, do you love me? And he says, yeah, feed my sheep. It's not that Peter is going to somehow prove to Jesus that he loves him by that. But what Jesus is saying is, if you love me, this is the proper response. It's not proving, it's applying. You, you see the difference? Like, we don't need to prove our love to, for God. He knows how much we love him better than we do. What we need to do is we need to apply that love in the right direction. So if we love God, then the proper response, just like we love uh, the people in our lives, the proper response out of that love is that we serve them. We're not trying to prove our love to them. I, I don't think. I hope not. I hope what we're doing is saying, because I love you genuinely, this, and then we serve them, and, and probably without asking for any kind of recognition or accolades from it. So it's especially interesting to me that Jesus says that our love for him is shown by our service for others. The third application is be careful about making comparisons with other people. And everyone is called exactly to the same path that you are. Be content to follow Jesus um, the way that, that God calls you and not try to look at how he's called other people. If you make comparisons, I think the Lord showed me this in Bible college. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but it had to do with the fact that um, somebody made a comment that I wasn't I, to me that I wasn't worshiping uh, as expressive. I wasn't being Pentecostal enough. Let's <laughs> just say that. And so there was a comparison that was made, and it troubled me for a while. And uh, the Lord showed me a truth out of that is that part of it is personality. People express themselves differently based on their personality. And sometimes God calls us out of our personality. And like uh, Jack Hayford said one time, he's, not, he's, he's a Pentecostal preacher. He's not very expressive. But the Lord told him one time in his office, I want you to dance. I said, Lord, that's ridiculous. Just me and you in here. You know? And he felt like God was calling. And so he got out, out from behind his desk and against his nature, he did it. But I... I think that most of the time we respond to God according a little bit to the personality that we have and the way that we've been wired. And then sometimes he calls us to step out beyond that. But this truth came to me um, during that time that if you compare yourself with other people, one of two things happens. One is you either are elevated in pride because you feel that you're doing better than them. Okay, That's one. The other thing is you feel ashamed and deflated because you're not as good. So it's not, it's not good to compare in those ways. There are times that when we hear of the lives of others, it challenges us to live a better life, and that's good. That can be good. But if we dwell in comparisons, we'll always be in one of two ditches, and that's not good. We can't dwell in comparison. Learn your lessons from the lives of other people. Learn from good examples and bad examples, but don't sit around in comparison. The Bible says in, I think, First Corinthians, maybe Second Corinthians, they that compare themselves to themselves, among themselves, if I'm comparing myself to you, they that do that are not wise. So live before God and let him lead you. All right, we're past time. I love to talk about the number 153 fish. But we don't have time for that. Let me tell you the gist of it, the skinny of it. What does it mean? I think it means they caught 153 fish. And that was probably a record for not breaking the nets. There's other options out there, but I think they're all bad. And so I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, sometimes number just means number. We're looking for lots of symbolism hidden in the Bible. And most of the time, there's enough there to keep us occupied for a lifetime if we just look for the straight message. And so I wanted to throw that out there. If you're interested in more of that, I have some other interpretations of that. But it would just be bonus. All right? Stand with me if you would. Amen. Thank you, Lord, that you're gracious to us. You're a good God. You're a loving God. We thank you, Lord, that you have died to forgive us of our sins. And sometimes those that are closest to you fail you in the biggest ways because we ought to know better. And I'm just praying, Lord, that you help us to always see that you're redeeming and a forgiving God who longs to draw us into fellowship, that wants to call us and to use us for your glory to set us on a path, not a path of destruction, but a path of life and effectiveness and usefulness. 
And I pray, Father, that it would help, we would learn to glorify you in the path that you've called us to, not by looking at others and making comparisons, but by keeping our eyes squarely fixed on you. As we think about the writer to Hebrews who said, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and uh, run the race that's set before us. And I uh, pray that you help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here and venturing the roads tonight. We'll see you on Sunday. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.